everybody, welcome back to the fifth episode of First Impressions, which is our third episode where we're going to talk about the amazing book Mansfield Park. As you know, I'm sure you're a faithful listener by now. Hi, Mom. <laughs> our podcast, First Impressions, is a safe space for people to talk about how much they love Jane Austen away from the haters and hopefully convert some haters in the process. It, as you, um, you may recall, in the first episode where we discussed Mansfield Park, we went through a plot summary. So if you're not familiar with the book and you didn't hear that episode, you might be a little lost, just FYI. So today, I, I can't believe I forgot to introduce, today I am joined by, as always, my darling friend Maggie. Hi listeners! We are back, we're a power duo. Fight crime and talk about Jane Austen. <laughs> so, Mansfield Park. So, old business. Yes, so, old business first. We now have a precedent for doing old business and apologies. Apologize to whomever we managed to offend with the previous episode's discussion. So I I I, I turned I made sure that the mic was on before I apologize. I actually owe Margaret an apology because so I lost my on handle on sanity. We were at a different book club that we both belong to, and I was being outspoken. And I forget how it came up, but somebody said something about Mansfield Park, and I was like, Maggie, I'm gonna rip you a new one. You said that Mansfield Park was slow, and it's not slow, and blah, blah, blah. As you remember, our argument about the pacing of Mansfield Park has carried on now through several episodes. But you have to understand the thing about Kristen is that when Kristen says that she goes off on someone, it's like when a corgi tries to attack you and you're just like, isn't that sweet? <laughs> and I was not offended at all. It was really cute. Oh, that's uh, nice. You obviously have strong feelings about the book. It's your favorite book of all time. Yes. And so I can completely understand why someone describing it as slow would put your hackles up. It, and I had, you I certainly don't owe me an apology for anything. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you for not taking offense and understanding that I'm an insane person. Um, but I, <laughs> I was thinking about it the night before and worrying, like, oh, are we selling the book? Because I'm such an intense evangelist for Mansfield Park, and I want people to read it and love it. And then I was thinking to myself, you know, and I realized I, I had this epiphany, that if we had said that about any other book, in the Austin canon, anything. You want to say Emma is slow, Sense and Sensibility is slow, Northern Abbey is slow. If, even if you want to say Pride and Prejudice, my beloved Pride and Prejudice is slow, I wouldn't have really minded as much as I minded it about Mansfield Park. And I had to ask myself why, why that is the case. And when I came to realize that when people say anything that could be construed as negative about Mansfield Park, it hurts me on a very cellular level. It really just cuts me up. And I sort of think that these two books, Pride and Prejudice and Mansfield Park, I kind of realized that so much of my personality and my like my mind has just been built up by these two books. Like they're such a part of me. Like I've taken so much from them and taken so many lessons from them and like just read them so many times. And I feel like they're part of my DNA. So I take it as a very personal affront, which is not most people don't have that kind of relationship with one book. I don't know if you... Have. I think, I, well, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think people do have books that they are absolutely in love I with and about. won't 
stand any criticism for. I think it's unusual in the Jane Austen canon to have that feeling for Mansfield Park. I don't think anyone maybe expects it from Mansfield Park, but I will say that my criticisms when I made them in our first Mansfield Park episode um, were coming from an objective review of the book, and I didn't know at that time <laughs> that it was your favorite book. And if you go back and listen, I think you're going to hear some pretty impressive backpedaling. <laughs> it was it was fine. See, at the time, I was like satisfied with your backpedal. It was only later having to relive um, the conversation <laughs> because I do. I think to myself, oh, I shouldn't said this, 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 and this, as if I didn't stuff enough crap into the last <laughs> podcast. I last time I had spent. I think four hours gathering clips and like recording clips and like being obsessed with like about how every little sentence is like amazing and I want to tell everybody and honestly I don't know for all we've talked about Mansfield Park and the characters and the plot I don't know whether I feel like I've made it at all clear that this is also a good book to read like a fun book to read that also you will take a lot from so Mansfield Park, my obsession is so deep that I try to talk about every aspect of the novel, and that's just an Everest I'll never climb. And today we are going to focus. We are going to talk so about... new business. New business. Let's talk about, Maggie, the subtext of slavery in Mansfield Park. Because there is nothing that people want to hear more than two white ladies, two middle-class white ladies, talking about slavery subtext. It's so, it's so true, and honestly, as I said in previous podcasts, it's very unfortunate in a way for a modern audience that Austin did more than, you know, mostly in this book, but there are a couple other references too, unfortunately compare rich white women to African slaves. And that's not a real, you know, comparison that, that can be made. But um, when you take a look and you read into the text and you realize what she's trying to say... She's trying to use this parallel to say this is what's going on in England at this time. And England sees itself as this incredibly moral, upstanding nation. And it's got a lot of stuff swept under the rug. Just as Sir Thomas sees himself as this moral, upstanding guy. And on the slide, he's making really morally questionable decisions. And it's also to say that as, as women, they, they were not free. And you'll see as the rest of the plot progresses how much of a slave Fanny was to um, the people who loved her and what they wanted for her life. And then they just were totally inflexible and didn't care what she wanted at all. Her opinion never seems to matter at all throughout this book. Her desires are always overthrown and her body is very much under dominion of them as well. And one of the things that ties so well into this whole slavery subtext is um, Sir Thomas has just returned. When we left the plot last in our last, time, episode. In our last episode, Sir Thomas has just returned, and this leads to kind of one of the most squicky parts of the book for Margaret. It is. It's very. It was very disturbing for me to read. Well, first, let's say what happened. So he comes back, and he sees everyone, and he's really upset about the theatrical. Right. And there's kind of like an, oh, no. He's such a moral guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for his, you know, slave-operated plantation. <laughs> right, right. Uh, totally moral. Um, but then he's been... How long was he gone in book time? I think it was about maybe a little less than a year. But it was amount of time because there was much comment paid to positive changes in Fanny while he was gone. 
Um, I don't know if you have this section bookmarked to discuss. I do. But basically, Edmund and Sir Thomas have a whole conversation about Fanny's figure and how pleasing to look at she is. And it makes her extremely uncomfortable. It makes me extremely uncomfortable to read. And this is another thing that we've mentioned, how a lot of the themes of Austen's books are absolutely accessible to modern readers. And I think they're going to be absolutely accessible to modern women. Because we still live, while women are not seen as much as property as they were in the Regency era, women's bodies are still seen as objects. We're still and it's still open season on comments on women's bodies. It's, you know, it, it does, it's not a, it's a thing that people are free to comment. I'm sure that you've seen all the videos that are going around on Facebook and social media about women walking down the street and how people comment on them. And this is a reality. I mean, it happens to me. I'm sure it happens to everybody. And it's just this idea that it's okay to just comment freely on someone's appearance and how it, it's flattering. It's a compliment. No, it's really not. So I'm going to let Kristen read this section. So Edmund uh, is talking to Fanny and Edmund is trying to convey compliments from Sir Thomas on Fanny's body. So he says this, but when did you or anybody ever get a compliment from me, Fanny? Go to my father if you want to be complimented. He will satisfy you. Ask your uncle what he thinks and you will hear compliments enough. And though they may be chiefly on your person, you must put up with it and trust it. Oh, uh, this is actually the wrong, this is the wrong paragraph. Okay, let me jump down to the <laughs> Your uncle thinks you very pretty, dear Fanny, and that is the long and short of the matter. Anybody but myself would have made something more of it, and anybody but you would resent that you had not been thought very pretty before. But the truth is, your uncle never did admire you until now, and now he does. Your complexion is so improved, and you have gained so much countenance, and your figure... Nay, Fanny, do not turn away about it. It is but an uncle. If you cannot bear an uncle's admiration, what is to become of you? You must really begin to harden yourself to the idea of being worth looking at. You must try not to mind growing up into a pretty woman. Now, unfortunately, some people might read that and be like, oh, he said she was pretty. But before he gets to that line, he's essentially saying to her, like, hey, girl, nice rack. Yeah, you or know, like, like she's a horse. Yeah, like, oh, man, you know, look at those forelocks. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. It's like yeah. she, it's like she's a, an animal. Well, women animal. as property, I and mean, women were used property. They were pawns in the, the economics game where they could be married in advantageous matches uh, to secure property, to increase wealth as payment of some kind. So I feel like Sir Thomas does come back different. I would say not quite as big an asshole, yeah. <laughs> but an still, asshole in yeah, a way. yeah, in a different way. Um, so his admiration of Fanny smacks of, hmm, this horse is getting quite attractive. I'll be able to get quite a good price for her. Exactly. I'll be, and hello, what's her name? Fanny Price. That's right. Oh, bam! An accident. It, and he starts to see her more positively because he starts to see how he can benefit financially from her. And the next thing that happens in their relationship is that he realizes that Mr. Crawford is taking an interest in her. And it's so clever the way Austin does this because um, she has this amazing thing where in her narration she can sort of get into her character's mind and sort of subtly, subtly mock them. Um, Sir Tom, so Henry Crawford, when he comes back into town, having, having left Mariah in a lurch, 
and then Mariah gets married and goes off and she's no longer around. Um, Henry Crawford comes back and decides for funsies he's gonna play with Fanny Price's heart. You know, sister, I'm kind of bored and I think I'll get Fanny Price to fall in love with me. (laughs) Which we talked about too, where this is just what people from where they are from in London and society, this is just what they do. Yes. Yeah, it's, he's, we play cards against yeah. humanity. They get country girls to follow <laughs> up with them. You know, it's just they don't even. He doesn't even necessarily realize and how evil it is. But it, what it says in the book is Sir Thomas could not help noticing, in a grand and careless way, that those people who might be quick sighted on such points might suspect that Mr. Crawford had an interest in Fanny. And what I think is so clever that Austin does here is. Before Sir Thomas comes home, all we hear about is how Mrs. Norris engineered this marriage, this very mercenary uh, marriage of Mariah and Mr. Rushworth. Well, now Sir Thomas comes home, and he thinks of that kind of behavior as the lowest of the low, you know, very much below a man of the aristocracy, which is quite ironic, considering. And he behaves exactly the same. I think that uh, what we're talking about with Austin the unfortunate parallel of women and um, African slaves, is that she's pointing out the hypocrisy of Western culture in general, which still exists. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, But this idea that we are so civilized and we do not behave in such ways. And then he turns around and does the exact same thing without seeming to realize it. Exactly. on a chessboard. And there are so many little things throughout uh, the next part of the narrative. Sir Thomas holds a ball for Fanny and for her, bro- her brother. Which she's horrified by, we should point out. <laughs> Remember, she's Fanny gets a bad rap, uh, but she is painfully shy. Mm-hmm. She does not like being the center of attention. I mean, that's what disturbs her about Edmund's comments to her. She's not thinking, I'm being treated as a piece of property and objectified. <laughs> I don't like this. No. To her, it's just like, please don't look at me. And now he wants to throw a ball for her. She's on display, and he doesn't care that she doesn't like it. And Mr. Crawford, of course, is all over Fanny at this ball. And um, there's this interesting little subplot that I'll just quickly, I'll talk about later. Anyway, Henry Crawford is there at this ball, and there's this scene where Fanny is tired. It's 3 a.m. She's had enough. Remember, this is the girl who gets exhausted if she walks to the end of the lane. Yeah, so having to stand up in front of people for many, many hours is, of course, going to be exhausting. Of course. And so Thomas makes her sit down. And Henry Crawford sits down likewise. She just cannot get rid of this guy, and she, it's driving her up the wall. Poor Fanny, she has no choice in it. Anyway, William, her brother, who's a very cute, open-hearted character who's adorable, I love this, this scene. He comes over to Fanny, and it says he's got his partner's fan. You know, these very lacy mm-hmm. fans. And he's working away as, as if for life. He's like, oh, poor Fanny. She's so soon knocked up. Which, of course, means tired. And, and he's, he's just, I just love that visual because I feel like he, he's this very, um, he's in naval, he's in the Navy. He's, in Navy, yeah. he's very kind of strapping young man. And he's got a little lacy fan. <laughs> Frantically fanning his boy. His as, poor swooning sister. As if for life, they say. <laughs> Anyway, Mr. Cro- Mr. Um, Sir Thomas rather says to Fanny, okay, it's time for you to go to bed. And Fanny's like, oh, okay. She has no choice in anything, so she goes to bed. And it says that Sir Thomas may have felt that Henry Crawford had sitting, been sitting next to her long enough, you know, for propriety's sake. Or 
He might have been trying to recommend her as a wife by showing her persuadableness. Again, docile animal mm-hmm. will do what she is told. Darling, why don't you go do this? Oh, what a wonderful idea, husband. Oh, certainly, whatever you want. So the most, most desirable trait in a woman is docile uh, persuadableness. And then when, when Henry Crawford does propose, which to me is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the entire book, and Fanny says no, Sir Thomas, supposedly this moral guy, hits the roof and calls her ungrateful. When Henry Crawford proposes and Fanny says no, Sir Thomas had absolutely not planned at all for any kind of hitch because the match is so financially suitable. And he calls her ungrateful. He's like, I've done everything for you and you won't take this advantage. And um, he's trying to sell her to a man who has enough money to buy her and it's a proper, you know, acceptable transaction to him. And he's looking to benefit financially from her. And I think it's understandable that Sir Thomas is completely gobsmacked by Fanny's response because she's never stood up for herself before. She's never disagreed. She's never not been docile and compliant. So from where he's coming from, this is completely unprecedented. In t- a total shock. And it is a total shock to all of them. And um, I did tab the uh, proposal just because there's so many good parts of this book that um, raise a lot of emotions in me. This is sort of the genesis of a thousand fiery Jezebel commenters. You read Jezebel, the feminist book. Yeah. Um, Henry Crawford, he goes away for a few days. When he comes back, he has succeeded in getting her brother promoted to lieutenant in the Navy, which is a huge deal. And he comes and he tells her, and she is trembling with joy. She is like weeping from joy. And this is the moment he, t- he takes to grab her hand and say, she's trying to leave, she's trying, I have to go tell my uncle. He's like, no, you can't go, allow me five minutes more. And then what happens is he proposes in a way that is so obnoxious. So I'll just read a little bit of it. He used such strong expressions and was so abounding in the deepest interest. There are finger quotes, okay. In twofold motives, in views and wishes more than could be told that Fanny could not have remained insensible of his drift had she been able to attend, but her heart was so full and her senses still so astonished that she could listen but imperfectly even to what he told her of William, saying only when he, when he paused, how kind, how very kind. Um, so he is, I love that, insensible of his drift. That's an authorial voice. That um, is the way she sort of make, mocks her characters even as she's writing about them. Because here is this impassioned Mr. Crawford proposing, and Austin calls it his drift, which I think is just um, one of her many cute. So basically, Fanny, the news that he has managed to secure, Mr. Crawford has managed to secure the commission for her brother, uh, has rendered her so shocked and surprised. It's like everything else becomes white noise and she can't quite focus on what he's saying. She considered it as all nonsense, as mere trifling and gallantry, which meant only to deceive for the hour. She could not but feel that it was treating her improperly and unworthily, and in such a way as she had not deserved, but it was like himself and entirely of a piece with what she had seen before, and she would not allow herself to show half the displeasure she felt because he had been conferring an obligation. Um, and, you know, that was all a quote. Obviously. So she basically has such poor uh, self-esteem and idea of herself, and she has such poor 
thoughts of his character that the, when he says that he and I do think that by the way that he does love her at this point in the book uh, genuinely but when he confesses his love to her and asks her to marry him she oh it can't be it's not real he's just saying this he does this all the time he would like tell the mailman that he loved him Henry Crawford is constantly expressing and confessing love to everyone and she doesn't think that she would be worthy of this anyway don't, Mr. Crawford, pray don't. I beg you would not. This is a sort of talking which is very unpleasant to me. I must go away. I cannot bear it. But he was still talking on, describing his affection, soliciting a return, and finally, in words so plain as to bear but one meaning, even to her, offering himself, hand, fortune, everything to her acceptance. It was so. He had said it. Her astonishment and confusion increased. And though still not knowing how to suppose him serious, she could hardly stand. He pressed for an answer. No, 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 she cried, hiding her face. This is all nonsense. Do not distress me. And this goes on and on for like a couple more paragraphs. He will not leave her alone. She has to physically run away from him. And Sir Thomas comes in and that sort of stops it. You know, um, and then he's so sad. He's like, it was so cruel to interrupt me. I was almost succeeding. You know, <laughs> you know and until she fled. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It really started to get through to her. Exactly. I think one of the things about Fanny's character that is interesting and that is sometimes missed on maybe, say, a first reading or a surface read, uh, we call her a weak character. Not, well, we don't, but some people think of her as a weak character. But I think she's basically been emotionally abused by these people her entire life. And she has such poor opinion of herself. Her, like I said, her crushing low self-esteem and has no thoughts of her own worth or value is really shown in this scene. The idea that someone could love her is so unbelievable that she just doesn't... She has to run away rather than be confronted with the possible truth. Um, she can't even process it. No. Um, and Sir Thomas then, he goes up and he's like, Hey, Fanny, good news. Mr. Crawford wants to marry you. Uh, uh, <laughs> capital! Capital! Because, <laughs> of course, um, you know, of course, Henry, Craw- Henry Crawford hasn't said anything about the fact that she doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then he says, she winds up weeping and inconsolable. As Fanny often does. After he says this, he's so pissed. And he says, I should have been very much surprised had either of my daughters, on receiving a proposal of marriage at any time, which might carry with it only half the eligibility of this, immediately and peremptorily, and without paying my opinion or my regard, the compliment of any consultation, put a decided negative on it. I should have been very much surprised and much hurt by such a proceeding. I should have thought it a gross violation of duty and respect. You are not to be judged by the same rule. You do not owe me the duty of a child. But Fanny, if your heart can acquit you of ingratitude. And then she's like weeping and weeping because even to her mind, as we know, even the slightest hint of her behaving ungratefully, she's like so self-flagellating about it. You know, even when he left and she couldn't cry. Yeah. She was crying over the fact that she couldn't cry. And this is the first time she has actually not just done what she was told to do. Right. And it was something, such a moment, and he, he chews her out so much, and I think you're exactly right. And in her context, in the context of her life, that took incredible... This is the thing. Call. This is why when someone says to you, 
in gentle listeners, <laughs> this is why in your life, when someone says to you that Fanny Price is a weak character, you can slap them in the face, first of all. And then second of all, you can talk about how she doesn't cave. They put tremendous pressure on her. Everyone does. They send her home. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yes. He sends her back to Portsmouth, which I don't know if you've been to Portsmouth. It's a shithole. With the idea that, fine, you don't want to do what we tell you to, then you don't get to live here anymore. Why don't you go back to your drunk dad, your 50 brothers and sisters in this gross middle-class house? Because, you know, they're really rich, so middle-class is like, oh, God. But you know what? Why don't you see what it's like if I don't support you? To only have two servants. Yeah. Why don't you go see what that's like to not have cable? Okay. You want to go back to your, you know, YouTube watching, your Hulu Plus? <laughs> You're not going to find Empire on Hulu Plus. No, but, but the point is, she does not cave through the entire novel. She sticks to her guns. She turns down Henry Crawford, no matter what. And she stands up for herself, and she yeah. doesn't do it. She doesn't allow her to become a piece of chattel. And Ed- Edmund, who is, is always supposed to be her champion and fails time and time again... His opinion, even though he says, of course you couldn't have done otherwise than to reject him because you didn't love him. He he is more of a moral person than Sir Thomas, and he's like, I understand for me. But this is his opinion on the matter. He tells her to do it too, and of course, because he is her god, basically, he assumes that she'll she'll do it. And this is the way he tells her, and this also makes my blood boil. So he's, he says to her, Let him succeed at last, Fanny. Let him succeed at last. You have proved yourself upright and disinterested. Prove yourself grateful and tender-hearted, and then you will be the perfect model of a woman which I have always believed you born for. um, Emotional manipulation there, and also the pernicious, you have to be grateful for a man loving you, and you have to want so much to return his regard. I know you do. Any good woman would have wanted to return this man's love. And also launched a thousand angry Jezebel commenters <laughs> in my heart. <laughs> it's like the, instead of the um, screenwriting monkeys in, uh, who type out um, writings in Kristen's mind, it's Jezebel commenters. Yeah, yeah, all the Jezebel commenters start commenting in my heart. I love that. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Um, but I think it, we should point out, too, that the reason why she doesn't... I mean, she doesn't love Henry Crawford, so that's why she turns him down. Um, but she also... It's not that she just doesn't love him. She's not like, you know, I see what you're saying. He's a great guy. He's just not for me. She doesn't think he's a great guy. Yeah. She thinks he's a total douchebag. Because what has she seen of him? Him basically making out with Mariah, who was engaged. Mm-hmm. When he proposes to her... One of the reasons she doesn't believe it is because she could see him proposing to anybody for fun. I mean, she kind of has him nailed, his character. She doesn't know that he does truly love her, which we, the reader, at this point, believe. And I think is what Austin was saying. But she knows that he plays with people's emotions and affections for fun. So, of course, she's not going to believe him. Right. And maybe this is a little premature to say this, but this book, every time it ends, this is one of the amazing things about this book, I feel a little differently about the outcomes every time it ends. 
We are told by Austin that his love is genuine and that uh, she would have eventually, after Edmund would have married Mary Crawford, she would have eventually married Henry Crawford. The book does have an epilogue, which I think is really cool, where she basically explains what happens with each character. Yes, and and they would. Austin kind of says, oh, they, that she would have been willingly bestowed upon. She would have willingly bestowed herself upon. But what Austin doesn't say is, you know, two years later, how it's going to go. She never says that Henry would have been a um, great husband, a great husband, or faithful forever. Would they've been happy because yeah. because. As we learn afterwards, Mary Crawford uh, believes that he would have continued to flirt with Mariah, even though all of them got married. She says something like, it would have been a standing flirtation every year at Southerton and Everham. And it's just shocking. I, I think he's like a guy who goes vegan for six months and like mm-hmm. can't keep it up. He He's inspired momentarily by this idea of pure love, but he, he doesn't hate, doesn't have those habits. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry for spoilers. Yeah, 200-year-old spoilers. Uh, So she does go back to Portsmouth, which, I mean, honestly, we try to make... It's not that bad. It's really not that bad. In the... Comparatively, it's like a shithole compared to Mansfield Park. But it's really not that bad. This is such an amazing book because there are no cut-and-dried answers. It's so complex. Austin is telling us to get married for money, like Mariah does with Mr. Rushworth, is a despicable thing to do with your life. However, to marry only for love as Fanny's mother has done, you would think that the normal author, you know, would trying to write this morality And they lived happily ever after. Exactly. She goes back to Portsmouth, and it's great to be poor, and everybody Mm -hmm. loves each other, and it's wonderful. Actually, when Fanny goes back to Portsmouth, it's a nightmare for her. Um, She's not, her health is not good, and she goes back, and even though there are two servants, apparently it's a Oh, and how many children are there? There's a lot of kids. <laughs> and there's a ton of kids, and they're all running around in this tiny house and slamming doors and shouting, and she gets headaches. It's like an Italian family. But that's, and that's the <laughs> absolute opposite of what English people valued. They valued their, at this time, they valued their tranquility and peace mm-hmm. more than anything. She doesn't get any of that there. Each person should have four empty rooms at any one time <laughs> that they can choose to <laughs> occupy in whatever means they... She... It, it, uh, really bad. It does describe very well how bad it is for her health because she can't eat the mm-hmm. food. Because it's talking about like how bad the servants are and they're always like half-cleaned plates and right. not half-cleaned knives and forks. And Rebecca's hash, Rebecca is the bad servant. Rebecca's hashes and Rebecca's puddings. She Rebecca hashtag the worst servant ever. <laughs> <laughs> and she, the only way she eats is she sends her little brothers out to buy cookies and buns at night. Like it literally says this and she um her parents are real messes her father drinks and swears and makes her the object of a coarse joke you know which is again creepy and her and objectifying her and once again yeah so it is i can't remember if this is something that is in the book it is in i think the 1999 movie adaptation where her mother specifically comes out and says this is what happens when you marry for love. It's explicitly stated. I don't think it is in the book. No, no. Um, but her mom is basically being like, why don't you accept this guy? What is wrong with you? Yeah. And then she kind of like looks around the room and looks at Fanny and is like, I married for love. <laughs> yeah. And so that's in, kind of interesting about what Austin's saying about her world and that you can't really do either. You have to hope that a guy you love comes along that has enough money to take care of you. Kristen, what was it that the uh, beginning of this book started with? Oh, the, um, there are certainly not so many 
men, rich men in the world as there are pretty women to deserve them. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty big theme in, in Austin's work for sure. And that's what she faced in her life. I mean, they, I don't think that um, obviously she didn't find that person. And you know, when, when we get when we get to talking about persuasion, I think you'll see what that kind of does to her. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was thinking earlier, and I don't know if we want to make this is kind of a tangent, but I'm sure our listeners are used to that. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you want to maybe make persuasion our next choice, but I thought that it might. Mansfield Park might be nice as a lead into persuasion because what you were talking about, how the ideal woman is someone who is docile and is easily persuadable, uh, that's kind of the central point of persuasion, is that the heroine allows herself to be persuaded out of a love match that was seen as not financially advantageous, and she suffers for it. For years, she suffers for it. She played the role, again, kind of like we were talking about Mariah, plays the role of the dutiful daughter um, or just family member and turns down a man that she loved who was not seen as worthy of her and then she's miserable mm-hmm. and um, that, that's a total mic drop of a point because we did say Boom! to show her persuadableness it's actually in the text that's so such a good was Mansfield Park written before Persuasion? Persuasion was the last one right before she died it was published posthumously and I think you can really tell when she was very ill when she was writing it. I think so wait, so Mansfield Park was, it was, pu- Persuasion was published after Mansfield Park. Yes. And it was also written after? Yes. Mansfield. Okay. Yes. So maybe when writing Mansfield Park, <laughs> then the seed of Persuasion was planted to, to, to further that idea that she, that she puts forth the themes of the ideal Regency woman basically gets hosed. I think you're so right that every possible angle, um, um, scenario for a woman in her financial situation is ex- um, explored. Because as you said, Sense and Sensibility is where Pride and Prejudice left off, and this is like an alternate, you know, scenario for Mansfield Park. No, maybe this is a good time, very quickly, to shift gears once again and talk about what this book has done for for me and the whole Fanny plot. Yes, whole, let's talk more about how it's. Let's talk about me. Yeah, let's go back to Kristen. Let's talk about me. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's make it all about me once again. But I think it was a little powerful for me to talk about not just talk about Pride and Prejudice, but what Pride and Prejudice, how important it was for me. Because part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is to finally say, like, it's not just a romance. It's not just a romance. Oh my God! Like these are things that are so important to me. Stop making fun of me for liking these things that are so important in my life and done so much for me. Like, that's not cool. It's not okay. I hate it. Anyway, so why don't I just say why Mansfield Park is important to me, and then I can get it off my chest, and then maybe feel like, you know, it's out there in the world, and I don't have to defend myself every time somebody drops a little comment or whatever. Let it out, Kristen. Oh, man, thank you for giving me permission to let no, it out, I'm, because I, I was it. really holding back. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It hit me. With um, it. Not literally, but you know, figuratively. I'm sorry for all the swears. I think it's probably evident to anybody listening by now that I'm like, I'm just an insane person. But there is a really, this is a very complex, subtle book. There's a lot of nuance. There's nothing cut and dried, as we said. There's no like obvious moral thing to take away, because... The, take, the takeaway is the world is complex. Morality is complex. There's a huge theme in this book of self-deceit. People who want a certain outcome, like Sir Thomas, seeing an advantageous match, and then changing his whole, everything he thinks is for that goal. He, he talks himself in. He, he moralizes himself with 
false logic into saying it's okay for me to force Fanny to do this. And there's an amazing passage. It's actually even more um, to the surface and more explicit when he allows Mariah to marry Mr. Rushworth. Sir Thomas does so with his eyes very much open. He gives her an out. Yeah, he tries, he goes to her and he says, you don't love Mr. Rushworth. I will act for you and release you. I will get you out of this if you're not going to be happy. How does he put it? He says, you know, perhaps we were a bit hasty. Yeah, he, he was accepted on too short an acquaintance. Right. And it would have been a minor scandal. It wouldn't have ruined her, but it would have just been a minor, minor scandal for Mariah. Um, it would have been fine. She was rich. Of course, there'd be another man waiting in the wings to marry her. And she had learned that she could love a man who was awesome, and she does love Mr. Crawford still. Anyway, but she has now, she's now in the mood for revenge. So her revenge is going to be to marry Mr. Rushworth and be really rich and show Henry Crawford, like, ha ha, I'm richer than you. Um, and that's her method of revenge. So it says explicitly, Sir Thomas was satisfied, too glad to be satisfied, perhaps, to urge the matter quite so far as his judgment might have dictated to others. It was an alliance which he could not have relinquished without pain. And thus, he reasoned. Mr. Rushworth was young enough to improve. Mr. Rushworth must and would improve in good society. And if Mariah could now speak so securely of her happiness with him, speaking certainly without the prejudice, without the blindness of love, she ought to be believed. Such and such like were the reasonings of Sir Thomas. Happy to escape the embarrassing evils of a rupture, the wonder, the reflections, the reproach that must attend it, happy to secure a marriage which would bring him such an addition of respectability and influence, and very happy to think anything of his daughter's disposition that was most favorable for the purpose. And you notice how Edmund, every time he comes to Fanny for advice, all he wants is approbation for her to say it's okay when he knows he's making a choice that is against his better judgment. Like when he accepted the role in yeah. the play. He comes to her and he's like, give me your approbation and she can't do it. And he's like, think it a little over. Just think about all these things. And he's talked himself into. Um, so I am curious to know, Kristen, uh, why the self-deceit theme of Mansfield Park speaks to you. There are a lot of ways we rationalize doing what we want to do, even though we have a feeling in the back of our minds like, it's probably not fair. It's probably a selfish thing to do. You're not considering other people's feelings. You can always talk yourself into doing that. The people that, um, like Fanny and Edmund, who are always examining their own motivations in every way and always trying to hold themselves up to the highest moral standard, I try to do that too. And I feel like this book has really illustrated that even though you think you're doing that, even though Edmund thinks he's doing that, he's not. And it, it illustrates how fallible we all are. And I think it's just a cautionary tale. And with Mariah Bertram especially, she has special snowflake syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. So she is so willing to believe the first time that Henry Crawford loves her. Then he leaves, and he obviously just lets her fall on her face and is miserable. Um, she's miserable. But as soon as he comes back to her after she's married and she's in London... And, he and he's been turned down by Fanny yes. multiple times. And like we were saying before, Mariah Bertram has been just raised by Mrs. Norris, who just keeps telling her. She's been told since she was young that she is a special snowflake, and she does deserve everything, and everybody loves her, and of course, everybody loves her the most. So when he comes back into her orbit and decides to play with her again and 
she's so willing to think that of course he loves me because she's so entitled. And um, I think Mariah Bertram for me is a, a special cautionary tale because I also have a special snowflake syndrome. I was also told when I was young, like how smart and how wonderful I am all, over and over again. You are smart and wonderful, Kristen. Um, not that smart. And I have to be the best at everything. I just have to be the straight A student. I have to be, you know, not only do I have to be good, but I have to be excellent, you know, in all my evaluations or, you know, I have to pass every test with flying mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And if I don't, then I get into this like horrible depression. And I just, you know, put incredible pressure on myself and I have to be that person or I don't know what to think about myself anymore. That's like the idea I have of myself in my mind. And so like, it's important to remember Mariah Bertram, like, who the hell do you think you are? You're not, you know, (laughs) you don't deserve everyone's accolades all the time for everything that you do. You do stupid stuff that's wrong and you just have to accept that, you know. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're... Uh, personal relationship with this book is of the general variety rather than the specific because I wasn't sure where you were going with the whole marrying Mr. Rushworth this idiot thing because Kevin is sitting right over there and frankly I thought that was a little rude oh. if you were going to draw that kind of conclusion but I'm, I'm pleased that it was just special snowflake syndrome and not other forms of self-deceit no, yeah, it has nothing to do with my romantic life. <laughs> but that's the amazing thing about Austin is that so much of her books have actually nothing to do with your romantic life and everything to do with your inner spiritual and moral and, and social, you know, lives. And, um, yeah. Well, Bay would like to pass on the note that Kevin is a catch. <laughs> and I have to confess that I don't disagree. Kevin is the, the catch. Um, so Kristen, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, is Mansfield Park a romance? I do not find it romantic, and I don't think we are supposed to find it particularly romantic. So if people say that, oh, Jane Austen, she just writes romances. No, there, it, Mansfield Park is deeply unromantic. It's an antithesis yeah, of if, romantic. In fact, when Edmund and Fanny get together at the end, it just sort of, says, oh, and they got together. It, you don't, it doesn't happen on page. No. It's in the epilogue. It's in the epilogue. Like, just just when, you know, he's getting over his disappointment for, disappointment for Mary Crawford, he looks up and Fanny is there, and he's like, oh, I'll marry you. And it doesn't talk yeah, about... it's not even like he realized he loved her all along. It's not even like that. It's just like, uh, okay. You're my silver medal. You know, like, oh, Fanny, I guess I'll marry you. And they go out, and of course she is excited about this because, of course, she can't, she's like just his mini-me. But um, they go off into, into the sunset together, and you have this feeling like to live their most boring possible yeah. lives. Whereas had <laughs> had they married their Crawfords, um, their respective Crawfords, their lives certainly would have had a lot more vim and vigor and entertainment and intellectual stimulation most likely. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. It's also very difficult after all the emotional abuse that she has been put through to imagine Fanny in any kind of passionate romantic situation. I don't want to think about that. I know. Actually, it's gross. I was just sitting here while you were talking. I was thinking about something else, which I will say doesn't happen that often. Usually I focus on it. <laughs> okay. Because so it, it is all brilliant. <laughs> um, but while we were talking about them getting married, in the back of my head, I was thinking, like, <laughs> And then I backed away from that in a hurry. Because I don't really want to think about it. I bet it's really awkward and... 
weird and lots of like bumping and not a lot of passion. And she gets headaches so much anyway that I'm sure she wouldn't mind starting to faint a few. Because yeah, I don't imagine that she could, she could. Well, you know, they're fictional characters, and you know, I don't want to be hard on them. As people, they are good people, and they try really hard to be good people. I really value that about these two characters. I want their happiness. Mm -hmm. It's just hard for me to imagine their happiness. Like Pride and Prejudice, at the end, you are left feeling like you want to stay with those people and know Mm -hmm. more about their marriage and see them at home. And at the end of Mansfield Park, you are more than happy to leave Edmund and Fanny to their business, you know, and like. Well, it's more like I imagine, you know, the the romantic gestures are like, oh, Fanny. You look so pale. Let me have the servant fetch you a blanket to, to warm you. And you overexerted yourself today, darling. Why don't you take it easy and I'll read to you from the Bible? And it's it's more like this weird he's like a weird coddling thing where he will just hold her close to him and suffocate her forever. Do you notice that when she speaks in this book? Um, a lot of times, even if Edmund's not there, she sounds like she's speaking as he taught her to speak, and she's seeking his approval, even when he's not there. She speaks a lot in, I'm, I'm trying to remember, because I did listen to the worst audiobook in the world, um, <laughs> as you've pointed out repeatedly. Sorry. But it sounds like she's, she asks a lot of questions. Well, she where she's like, should, should I, should, what, what, should I, should I do this, should I do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, don't say that, don't, don't do that. It's just a lot of kind of pushing back. Oh, cousin. Yeah. Oh, oh, cousin. oh, dear. Oh, no. Um, but she does have a couple of soliloquies, and one of them, she's with Mary Crawford, and they're in the garden, and she's like, the evergreen. How wonderful. How welcome, the evergreen. In some countries, we know it is the trees that lose their leaf that are the variety. It's a boring as hell soliloquy, and you feel like she's saying it for Edmund to come pat her on the head. Yeah. He taught her to think about all this stuff. There's another time at that at that dinner where they're all talking about landscaping, where Mr. Rushworth is talking One about... One of the most stimulating, stimu- very stimulating of the book. Mr. Rushworth is saying, I must have the avenue down. I'm going to cut down the avenue. And if at, an avenue, of course, is a road that's got the same kind of tree on either side, and they're all the same height because they've, they've all been planted at the same time. It's a really beautiful thing. And she's sitting there, and he's taught her to be this romantic. She's read all this romantic poetry, Cooper being one of the poets that Austin loved. So she, she says to Edmund in an under voice, because, of course, no one can hear her talk. She didn't want to draw any attention to herself. Cut down an avenue. What a pity. Does not it make you think of Cooper? <laughs> oh, you fallen avenues. Once more I mourn your fate unmerited. And he sort of looks at her and he says, I think the avenue stands a bad chance, Fanny. <laughs> like, he laughs at her. There's this subtle, like, joke where he's like, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, well, I think I, something like that could also... They do have, despite... I mean, I agree with you that it's very much a Pygmalion tale, <laughs> which also makes the ending kind of creepy, yeah. how he ends up with the kind of Gollum character <laughs> that he's created. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm using Gollum not in the... Um, uh, Lord of the Rings version, but in the like actual a golem that was like fashioned from clay and was used as a servant. Yeah. Um, so that makes it kind of weird. Like he ends up with the blow up doll, perfect Regency woman mm-hmm. that he created. Um, but they do have their own. She, he, he, and her brother are the only people that she is comfortable with and can express any kind of personality with. So the fact that Fanny made a joke. It's kind of astonishing. <laughs> and they do have their own kind of like secret language that they can That's communicate true. with each other. Mm-hmm. So 
your point of that section is well taken, but I think it's also it is kind of sweet. I think it's sweet. It there but is creepy. certainly the intensity of their emotions. That element of their relationship is very moving. Certainly, the intensity of her emotions. I can really relate to that, especially when I was young and anxious and didn't have a hard time expressing myself. She's sort of silenced, but very emotional. I was sort of silenced by my anxiety and also having this huge emotional storm going on in my head all the time. And I relate to her a lot on that level and just this unrequited, quiet love. I feel like that was high school me. But talk about emotional stunting. I mean, the only people she she grows up with and has any exposure to are her relatives, such that the man that she is in love with for her entire adult life is her cousin. (laughs) Yeah. Which was totally cool, by the way. That's right. That's I mean, not, I'm not saying that you know. But for our reader, for our yeah, listeners, but if we want to, if we want to go back to kind of uh, Miss Bingley's point in Pride of Prejudice about a small social circle and a restricted society, I mean, Fanny doesn't get out a lot, so of course she falls in love with her cousin because who else is she going to fall in love with? Right, and Mariah has never met anyone that she fell in love with before. Which is why Henry Crawford comes in and is like, "This it's like, guy's amazing," but she doesn't know anybody. Her world, he rocks her world. One romantic part of this book, the part that makes me most invested in Fanny and Edmund, and makes me actually feel something, feel happy that they might be together. I'm happy for her because she loves him so much. She is the heroine. I do like her. We want her to do well and succeed. I I don't want her to get, you know, horribly murdered at the end. I participate in her love. I don't know that I like Edmund and everything he does, but she loves him so much that as a reader, you start to kind of love him too. And, um, after Mariah runs away with Mr. Crawford, this is a gigantic sin that she has committed. It's not a little scandal. It is the end of her life. And, the end of all respectability for the rest of her family who are in public life. Well, this is a theme that we've seen before in Pride and Prejudice also. The idea of a respectable... And this is even worse because Mariah was married. It wasn't like she was a silly teenager. She was a married woman. So let's talk Let's talk about the reveal that of the runaway because there's something... Is, it, is this the newspaper yes. article? Okay. It comes out in this newspaper article that Fanny's father is reading. But between benders... He does like to read the Wall Street Journal, the Portsmouth Star, and uh, take in the latest news. She's sitting there in this horrible, like after three months of being in Portsmouth, she's extremely ill. She's sitting there in this sickly glare of sun. And I won't read you this passage about, it's it's this amazingly descriptive passage about uh, the milk was a mixture of motes floating in thin blue, and the bread and butter was growing every minute more greasy than even Rebecca's hands at first produced it. <laughs> so she's sitting there bored as hell. Hashtag worse than ever. Hot as hell in this awful little house. And her father is reading the newspaper, and he goes, What was the name of your great cousins in town, Fan? And she says, Rushworth, sir. And then he hands her the paper, and I have to read this. This always strikes me as, I always have to smile at this. Fanny read to herself that it was with infinite concern the newspaper had to announce to the world a matrimonial fracas in the family of Mr. R. of Wimpole Street. The beautiful Mrs. R., whose name had not long been enrolled in the lists of Hymen, and who had promised to become so brilliant a leader in the fashionable world, having quitted her husband's roof 
in company with the well-known and captivating Mr. C, the intimate friend and associate of Mr. R, and it was not known, even to the editor of the newspaper, whither they were gone. It was not known even to the editor of this newspaper what, where they went. What was the order of Hymens? I can't even. Oh know. yeah, yeah. No, um, was not had not long been enrolled in the list of Hymen. the list of I can't even. It's so awful. Hymen, Hymen being the Greek. Yes, I mean I, I know I, I know I get the literary reference. Yeah. It's still just awful. She was married. <laughs> She'd been married. She had sex. She was deflowered. It basically means she had not long been married. But it's just. It is awful. It is awful. And that is a brilliant piece of writing. I just love it, though. It's, I mean, I'm sure all the newspapers have that pompous st- style and pompous tone. But um, it's funny to get it delivered to us in this way. I feel like I've actually read a newspaper, you know. Yeah. And I, think, I think it shows kind of, you know, they change the names to protect the innocent or at least use abbreviations. But everybody knows who they're talking oh, about. Yeah. Even her dad, <laughs> who is totally drunk and not paying attention, he he knows. It's a much smaller is. world then. Yeah. yeah. And um, so she reads this newspaper. She realizes what has happened. And she goes, oh, shit. She is stunned. Stunned. And she spends a night like she has a fever running hot and cold, chills. And Because um, we don't necessarily understand what magnitude of scandal this was. And what she actually says, she, then she starts to think about Sir Thomas and to think about Edmund and, oh, my God, what they must be going through. And she, but also, this is the guy who, for the last... Two, three months, four months, has been professing his love for her. Oh yeah! And then she has to find out from some gossip columnist <laughs> from her dad, who he knows that Mr. Crawford was angling to get her as well. I think doesn't the whole family know that Mr. Crawford had proposed to her? No, that side of the family does not know, except for William knows. Okay, but the point is, she has to read about basically like her boyfriend running off with her married cousin. From this newspaper column. And she had started to care about him a little bit. It says his power over her... No, her power over him had already given him some power mm-hmm. over her. But she, she doesn't think about herself. No, she immediately She's not concerned thinks for of Edmund and Sir Thomas and, uh, and talking, you know, talking about them and how moral they were. It, it says, it appeared to her that as far as this world alone was concerned, the greatest blessing to every one of kindred with Mrs. Rushworth would be instant annihilation. That's how much she does not want to live through the storm that is coming. This is, they're running off together is like a nuclear bomb that is going to take out every member. Their respectability of the whole extended yeah. family. And, and, and Edmund and Mary Crawford can't get married because of the scandal. Mm-hmm. That's, that's immediately obvious to everybody, except yeah. for Mary Crawford, mm-hmm. who's still, anyway. Let's talk, can we talk about that? Can we talk about Mary's? We have to talk about one more reaction. thing. Okay. I was driving towards that one moment that I think is, think of as romantic between Edmund and Fanny, and it's not, it's funny how it's not, and you'll laugh when I read it, but, um, so, uh, she's thinking of him, oh my god. Then she gets a note from him that says, oh, by the way, so they, Sir Thomas and Edmund get into London, and they find out that Julia has eloped with Mr. Mr. Yates. Yates. Oh, Mr. Yates. Which is a funny subplot, because Julia figures out what happens, and she's like, oh, snap, we gotta get married right away. She was not planning to marry Mr. Yates. It says very explicitly she was just allowing his attentions, very little idea of ever accepting him. She's like, oh my god, I'm getting married right away, otherwise, you know. It's over. It's over. So she gets married. Um, anyway, Sir Thomas and Edmund get, get into town and find that she's eloped, and they're like, oh, the hell? <laughs> Come on. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else in this family want to screw up everything and 
and drag our name through the dirt because you know what? At this point, I just can't even handle it. But they're devastated. She is devastated. But anyway, Edmund comes to the house. He comes to get Fanny. She's like, oh my god, he's here. Well, we should also mention that is Tom still sick at this point? Yeah, we haven't talked about that yeah, yet. Tom, meanwhile, Tom's on death's yeah. door. Yes. The eldest son, Tom, has gotten very sick. He basically has a really bad flu. So I that's think. a really interesting Mary Crawford subplot. So let's mm-hmm. talk about that. So you, okay. you go. Well, I just said it. Yes. He, so basically, Tom is really sick. He's really sick. He is the, fir- he is the heir. He is the eldest son. He is the one that Mary thought she would fall in love with because she knows herself. No. Uh, but no, she wasn't. Um, but he's really sick. He could basically die at any moment. And Tom was sick before the elopement. Right. And so she's Fanny is getting all these letters about how sick he is. And then she gets a letter from Mary Crawford. Mm-hmm. And you and I talked about this, and you said something so insightful. I never really understood this letter. It always rang very unbelievable to me because what she says in the letter is, Fanny... I want to know how things are in Mansfield Park. Essentially, let me know if Thomas is going to die. Yeah. Because if so, I want to marry Edmund. Yeah. And and otherwise, because not remember right. we said yeah. earlier that the reason why Mary didn't accept Edmund is because she didn't want to live that type of life. She didn't want to be a clergyman's wife. That's she. It's not that she didn't care for him because she did, and she respects his character, but she just doesn't want to live that kind of life. She says in her... But if she can be the lady of Mansfield Park, that's completely different. Yeah. And she writes to Fanny, and, and she her letter is so funny. Mary Crawford is so funny. Um, anyway, she but she writes it with this very funny, joking tone. But she literally says, she says, Oh, to have such a fine young man, meaning Tom, cut off in the flower of his days is most melancholy. Poor Sir Thomas will feel it dreadfully. I really am quite agitated on the subject. Fanny, Fanny, I see you smile and look cunning, but upon my honor, I never bribed a physician in my life. Poor young man, if he is to die, there will be two poor young men less in the world, and with a fearless face and bold voice would I say to anyone that wealth and consequence could fall into no hands more deserving of them. It was a foolish precipitation last Christmas when he took orders, Um, but varnish and gilding hide many stains, she says. And I, I said to Maggie, I was like, I, I don't understand why she would be so blunt. She knows Fanny is not this kind of person. And you said to me um, that when you're cool and think you're cool, like Fanny Crawford, I mean Mary Crawford, and you're funny, you think of yourself as a mentor to lame people. And she's right. <laughs> and obviously I can, because of Kristen and mine, really. Clearly. I'm sure she's writing this list in your interpretation, which makes sense. She's writing this letter and she's like, ha ha, this is so witty. And Fanny, you know, I'm spicing up Fanny's life. Mm-hmm. She's never had ideas like this yeah. in her way, but she's going to think this is funny because it is. And um, we think it's funny. Yeah. Um, but also extremely craven and, um, and I, inappropriate. It's, it's so funny to me how Mary calls Fanny her true friend and they do have a friendship. You know, they go and Fanny visits her when... Um, they are in town by Mansfield Park when they're at the, uh, the clergyman's houses, and they spend a lot of time together. But Mary still really has no idea the type of person Fanny is, because if she knew her at all, she would know that that letter would horrify her. I always think it's amazing and says a lot about Fanny's sense of honor that she doesn't immediately take that letter and forward it to Edmund and say, this is the woman you're thinking about yeah. marrying. But that would be, that's not honorable. Right. You don't forward personal correspondence. Right. Anyway, um... Oh my god, now I would. I mean, I would. But, yeah. You know. But we're petty. 
<laughs> we have a lot. We <laughs> our our walls have come down with yeah. regard to looking out for your friend. But yeah. I think the big the big takeaway of this moment is that you should know that not only do we talk about Jane Austen and these books on the podcast, we also talk about them IRL. <laughs> Amongst our in our real lives, when we're just hanging out. Sometimes we talk about them at book clubs. What we're supposed we're, to be talking when we're about. not talking about the actual book. <laughs> you know what, Kristen? This reminds me of that. You know, Park and the other five members of the book club are like, "What are you doing?" They're highly entertained. We're supposed to be talking about Orphan Train. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Yeah, orphan train. yeah. yeah. It's not. It, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> That's right. A lifestyle. It's not a hobby. It's yeah. a lifestyle. You just get into it, and then you never get out of it, and then. You... But basically, Marion Crawford is a horrible person. She's a horrible person. She's funny and charismatic and beautiful, but a horrible person. And there's um, but all through it, you can't help but like her. Yeah. And um, and when Edmund goes to her, this is one of the things that is so interesting about reading this book. Um, in the modern era, 200 years later, with our idea about broken marriages being so different now. And um, infidelity doesn't mean you have to go live in a remote country house for the rest of your life like it did then. When he goes to, Edmund goes to Mary Crawford after the scandal, he wants to see her and one last time, even though they can never be together now. And she's, she says, come in, you know, let's talk about this. Can you believe the folly of our two relations, putting themselves in the power of a servant, being found out? And she's not at all worried about the infidelity, the actual sin, of course, and the means so religious. Mm -hmm. And Mary says, and this makes total sense to me, half the time when I read this book, Mary's like, look, we got to make them get married. Henry has to marry Mariah. Because, of course, now no one else will touch her. Right. And we got to reestablish them in society by bankrolling them. And they, you know, if they give a lot of parties, they're all they, be people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, stop, please. Mm -hmm. With good dinners and large parties, there will always be those that would welcome their acquaintance. And that makes so much sense to me. I'm like, Henry Crawford has ruined her for life. The only, the least he can do now is marry her. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, it's not like he can marry Fanny. She would never get with him now. And he doesn't, and he does it out of this sense of like, ugh, you're gross now, you're a ruined woman, you know, and um, no one would accept you in society. And to me, that just seems, but of course, we're supposed to feel like, no, he's evil, and she's so much better off living in some remote country house with her aunt and hating what happened. Yeah. Mrs. Norris and Mariah end up having to live together in disharmony. Yeah. And it's kind of, it is poetic justice, I think. She, Mariah was the one that Mrs. Norris built up herself and mm -hmm. kept saying was special. It's like, she's so special. Yeah. There's very much a sense of, in the, if we can just skip to that, well, I mean, going back to what we're saying, so Edmund basically is horrified by Mary Crawford's reaction that they were, it was only that they got caught. Yes. Not the fact that they were, you know, fooling around with each other. His eyes are open and his, right. his self-deceit becomes evident because he's heard her say a lot of iffy things. But he's like, oh, she's just joking around. And now he gets it. Yeah. Um, we should talk about the epilogue. We, we should talk about this one moment, the, the only romantic moment that I feel really... Oh, yeah, you never actually about. said. So what is the romantic moment between Edmund and... He comes to pick her up in Portsmouth and they have a moment where they first see each other again after all this has happened. And um, it's... He, she's like, oh my God, I can't see him, and it's so emotional. By eight in the morning, Edmund was in the house. The girls heard his entrance from above, and Fanny went down. 
the idea of immediately seeing him with the knowledge of what he must be suffering brought back all her own first feelings. He's so near her, and in misery, she was ready to sink as she entered the parlor. He was alone and met her instantly, and she found herself pressed to his heart with only these words, just articulate. My Fanny, my only sister, my only comfort now. She could say nothing, nor for some minutes could he say more. Notice she's been promoted from cousin to sister. Highly romantic. Yeah, so <laughs> super There's a ton of emotion in that scene. Right. And the writing At the end of the so day, they really do understand each other, and they can really only take comfort in each other. They're the, they are the only people that understand what this really means and what they're going through. Yeah. And, and, I, and I feel kind of bad, because I feel like we've kind of like hated on Edmund's character a lot, <laughs> and we've kind of been taking a, but Fanny's cool and here's why approach, but still kind of being like, but, you know, despite all of this stuff, she is kind of lame, but it's not her fault. <laughs> it's not her fault. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they are the kind of the central love story. I mean, you do want Fanny to be happy. You want yeah. her to end up with Edmund. Yeah. And you want her, I want her to be happy every time and I'm happy every time that she's happy. And I'm happy in that moment that she finally has some sort of Catharsis of this waiting and wanting and embrace. For him, yeah, and to, for her to finally be able to embrace him and mm-hmm. feel that she's a comfort to him. She, that's her purpose in life. Yeah. She feels like her, she's fulfilling her purpose in life. And um, they are the characters I respect the most in this book. I, yeah. I certainly don't mean to dump on them. Yeah. So let's um, let's talk. Let's kind of wrap up the Mansfield Park as discussion as the book itself wraps up with the epilogue. And I think it's really, first of all, I love the epilogue. I'm sure some people don't, but I like knowing what's going to happen to the characters down the road. And there's sort of a kind of the punishment fits the crime idea where people do kind of get what they deserve. And I feel like that happens a lot with Jane Austen. It's, you know, it's a comedy. It ends with a wedding. Yeah. We don't see it, but we know that Edmund and Fanny do end up getting married. But she will tell us what happens to the other characters. And they kind of get the fate they deserve. Like Mariah and Mrs. Norris end up together, probably miserable. Mm, for sure. Just bitching at each other the mm. entire time. Yeah. On one side, no temper, or the other, no judgment or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Morris. We haven't even really illustrated how awful she is, so you'll just have to take our word for it. Well, every time we talk about her now, I just, and, and again, my mind's eye, which plays a movie when I read and things like that, now I just see the cat from Harry Potter acting out her part. So I see like a cat and a little, like, cat <laughs> sitting at the table having discussions. <laughs> Which is like its own meme. I don't even know. It's like its own cat video on Facebook now because there's so many of them. But yeah, in my head, Mrs. Norris is no longer played by a human. She's played by Mrs. Norris in the Harry Potter films. Nice. There's poetic justice. And I think one of the reasons that um, I think that Mary Crawford might secretly be a darling of Austen's is that her fate isn't so bad. Mm-hmm. She continues to live with her sister, Mrs. Grant, and they get along great. The only thing is that she is now looking for a man to marry, and it takes her a very long time to find anybody among the idle heirs apparent. But she is independently wealthy. Yes. She's not financially, she's not no. destitute because right. of this. Her good name may be ruined by association, but she's not 
sentenced to a life of squalor. She has enough money that she can... When you have that much money, you'll st- you're still going to be able to get married, yeah. no matter how scandalized I mean, she is. basically puts herself on her own prescribed Mary Crawford way to redeem your name diet. Right? <laughs> I mean, she spells it out when she's talking to Edmund. Yeah. And she is enough of a social expert and interesting enough person that I'm sure she always finds some people. Yeah. She scrapes long. That are willing to. She has a happy life. She just doesn't, she just threw away a man she loved. Yeah. And the consequence of that is that it takes a really long time to find another man is good. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and that's what happens to her. And Austin does get a dig in at Henry Crawford by saying that, um, you know, in this world, the punishment or his behavior, their behavior, is not as equal as we would like. Because Mariah is ruined forever. Henry Crawford is now just kind of like a Lord Byron-esque scandalous Well, Mariah is basically slut-shamed. Yeah, right? she's exactly. exactly. Um, so Austin's like, you know, in this world, the penalty is not as equal as we could like. Um, what else? Julia and Mr. Yates are redeemed. They basically are just, like, happy, right? They just kind of chill and, okay, we're married and all right. And Mr. Yates does not have as much debt as Sir Thomas suspects, and he actually turns out to be kind of a good guy. They yeah. like to read Lover's Vow and then really good times. <laughs> I don't know. I don't imagine Julia particularly no, loves I'm kidding. him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, no, it's funny. It's better than nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's better than nothing. It's yeah. better than sitting in a cottage with Mrs. Norris and <laughs> Yeah. Uh, kind of moving back a little bit, and I know we're wrapping up, but I thought this was an interesting point worthy of discussion. Of course, I thought of it. Um, <laughs> do you think that Mary Crawford might actually know herself better than any of the other characters in the book? And she mentions this when she talks about how she will fall in love with Tom because she knows her own mind. She turns down Edmund. Yes, she does have feelings for him, but she knows she won't be happy in that life. She knows she won't be happy as a clergyman's wife. And I feel like, you know, I talk a lot about how Austin writes about themes that are still relevant in our modern world. And we have to make these kind of decisions and compromises in our life all the time. You may love someone, but you know that this is not going to be a good place for you or a good decision for you to be married. It's such a perfect, perfect thing for you to bring up because, so do you remember the scene where they're all playing cards? (laughs) They're playing speculation. Right, That's, this goes to exactly what you just said. There's a scene where they're all playing this game. It's a, a game where you sort of barter for cards to try to get the best hand. And Mary Crawford is sitting there next to Edmund, and um, he's talking about how he is about to become a clergyman, and she's getting really pissed off. She's like, he knows I won't marry him mm-hmm. if he's a clergyman, but he's going to do it anyway. Yeah. So she... Um, she is, is bartering with William Price while this is happening. That's Fanny's brother. Yes, Fanny's brother. So Edmund's, you know, saying, Well, I hope my job may suffice all who care about me. And Miss Crawford, a little suspicious and resentful of a certain tone of voice and a certain half-look attending the last expression of his hope, made a hasty finish of her dealings with William Price and, securing his knave at an exorbitant rate, exclaimed, there, I will stake my last like a woman of spirit. No cold prudence for me. I am not born to sit still and do nothing. Mm-hmm. If I lose the game, it shall not be from not striving for it. Right. She's going for her ideal life that she knows yeah. she will be happy in. So I, that's why I don't feel like she... I mean, yeah, she kind of... We've talked about this before, how she's the dark side of Lizzie Bennett, right? She crosses the line. She says things that are inappropriate. She's not principled. 
um, and her letter to Fanny certainly proves that. Yeah. But she knows she won't be happy as kind of a poor clergyman's wife. That's not what she's looking for. So she doesn't marry Edmund. And honestly, if factors outside her control, meaning Henry running off with Mariah, she would have probably ended up being, and she was fine anyway. Mm -hmm. But my point is she made that choice, but it's not like she's punished because of it. Mm -hmm. She didn't recognize the amazingness of Edmund. And so she gets punished, but she knows she wouldn't be happy. And again, that's what, like with Fanny standing up and saying, I know I'm not going to be happy with Henry Crawford. I'm not going to marry him. It's a form of bravery. I think it's kind of brave, brave to go against your own heart sometimes and be pragmatic. The best example I can think of it for someone today, it's like, say you loved someone and they got an amazing job offer on the other side of the country. And you know... I can't move there. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. I can't, I'm not going to be happy there. I've got to stay here. I have my own opportunities here. I love what I do here. This is not from personal experience, by the way. I'm just trying to think of an example. And so you have to let that person go. That in itself, I think, is a brave decision. Yeah. Because you know that it's just not going to work. Yeah. And it's still hard. So this is another example of why I really like Mary Crawford. And I think that she does know her own mind. And she, we talk about self-deceit. I don't think Mary Crawford really engages in a lot of self-deceit in this book. I think she kind of knows what's going on. I think that's true. I think the, the only way she may be deceiving herself is that she may think she's a little too cool. Mm-hmm. But um, this is... She thinks she's perhaps, she thinks herself a little too clever, and so she doesn't realize that when she does cross the line to inappropriate. Yeah, but I think you make make an excellent point. And she's such a compelling character. There's some anecdote about some some guy, um, a member of Jasna, right? So there was some meeting with... That's the, I think we should explain what Jasna, the Jane Austen Society of North America. You're telling me that everybody doesn't know what Jasna stands for? I know it's shocking. (laughs) They They were having some meeting. This is anecdotal. I'll have to find the actual anecdote. They're having some meeting where they're talking about Mansfield Park, and a guy gets up from the back and he's like, before you begin, you need to know that I've been in love with Mary Crawford for the last 20 years. (laughs) Watch what you said. I will go crazy in this room. It's just like you try to insult Mansfield Park around Christmas. Although she should have given me that warning before we started discussion. It's true. How How could everybody not know? that Mansfield Park is. But we talked about this where people make a mistake with her character when they try to paint her as a villain. Mm-hmm. Because she's not a villain. She just comes from a very different background and more, not so much even morality. I mean, she doesn't think killing people is a good thing. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. The line of what is considered appropriate and that you can joke around with is just different for her. Anything else in the epilogue? Um, I, don't, I just really enjoyed it. Oh, I, I'm Sir sure Tom, this yeah. is interesting. Oh, yeah, Sir, Sir Thomas. Thomas. Tom recovers Tom, who did not die. <laughs> and so it's a good thing that she didn't. He becomes quiet and useful and stops gambling, so he becomes boring too. Yeah, blah, blah. But Sir Thomas gets weirdly redeemed because he is happy that Edmund and Fanny are getting married. He's sick of mercenary connections. I think he realizes his own self-deceit and... He's happy in having Fanny as a daughter-in-law, and they sort of live this quiet, happy life together. Maybe that's really interesting. Well, this is an unfortunate occurrence, but the the result has to be this awful, with Mariah running away and ruining the family name to kind of make you realize (laughs) that that you screwed up. Right. That's a very difficult lesson. 
It couldn't be something small. I mean, she she is an overachiever. She's not just gonna <laughs> screw up in a small way. She's gonna right. totally blow the whole thing up. That's right. <laughs> She's gonna burn the house down. A cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, so, do you feel like we've done justice to your favorite book of all time? I'm amazed at how much we were able to get through. I'm really glad we said we talked about everything that I wanted to talk about. It's amazing, and we only did it in an hour and a half. So. <laughs> well, three <laughs> hour and a half oh, no, yeah, <laughs> total. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll see if I can edit this down to like a, a less indulgent uh, length. So, do we want to maybe for so now we need to do our wrap up typical yes. wrap up business. Um, go, oh, we, so we need to tell our gentle listeners what wine we were drinking. But first, I need to point out that I in a rare moment stayed sober this recording i did not indulge in the wine and there's a brief story if you'll give me just a second i was at a party last night um it was a halloween party and so i was wearing a costume which involved a white t-shirt which if you know me at all you know that this is foolish (laughs) because i spill and drop things on myself all the time and so i don't know what possessed me to think this was a good idea i was sitting on the couch we were watching a movie scary movie i was drinking red wine oops i looked down entire front of my shirt (laughs) is covered in red wine and i just screamed for like 30 seconds (laughs) because i am a shy flower Uh, (laughs) i'm never prone (laughs) to acts of drama um, but it has a happy ending. The stain did come out. It was a Halloween miracle. <laughs> the point is, when I walked into Kristen's house and she offered me wine tonight, I thought, no. I will, for once, exercise a bit of discretion. However, she has been drinking throughout. And what we it was a white tonight. It was a, was this, Koenig Vineyards? Yes, from Idaho. From Oh, in, in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> vineyard. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, it, it was a Chardonnay 2013. And what was your review? What do you think? Um, I really, really liked it. And, and we were on vacation in Boise, Idaho. And um, this wine comes from the Snake River Valley, which is a very fertile uh, sort of valley in Idaho. It's, it's like the Fertile Crescent in Idaho. <laughs> I don't know about that. But it was uh, really, um, we thought, the really cradle of civilization in yeah. Idaho. I'm making a Mesopotamia <laughs> joke. Mesopotato? No. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> that, 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 that was no. incredible. No, that was awful. Bay was high-fiving. It was awful. I can't even. I'm sure if I was drunk, I would have appreciated it, but I just can't. Uh, so what is your, you, you enjoyed it. You liked the I liked it very wine. much. It has a very concentrated, fruity flavor. It's almost like it. For a white wine, it kind of punches you in the face. I oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So the the final thing that we should talk about is maybe what our next book selection is going to be. I think Persuasion might be a good idea. Do you have something else that you wanted to propose? I have um, I have a lot of really conflicted feelings about Persuasion, and I think it would be good to do as a final episode. Oh, okay. Um, because it was... So... If we, could, if we could maybe table that one, is there another one you want to do? Do you want to do... Um, you know, I've never read Northanger Abbey, actually. Oh, okay. Um, I bought a copy of it when we were in Ball. <laughs> um, like you do. Many years ago, which I'm a horrible person because I haven't read it yet. It's also one of my favorite... Adaptations. Movie adaptations. Oh, it's great. Um, so why don't we do Northanger Abbey? Because I haven't Let's actually... Ever, it's the only one of her books I haven't read. That's going to be a fun one. Let's do that. And maybe we can do a special episode... <laughs> where we sort of MST3K provide a commentary track 
for the recent yeah. BBC adaptation because listeners. It is amazing. It's so good. It has one of my favorite actors, JJ oh, Field. It has um what's her name? She's Felicity really Jones. Yeah, Felicity Jones, who is huge now. Yeah. And also uh, Carrie. Carrie, what the hell is her name? No, no, Carrie. No, no. She was in Gadsby. Yes. Uh, she was nominated for an Oscar. Honey. Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan. Kevin, <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Car- oh, sorry, babe. You knew it too. Aww. Whatever. Uh, Carrie Mulligan. I mean, star-studded cast before they were famous. It's excellent. It's like 90 minutes. It's really entertaining. I think that might be fun for a special episode. That would be great. Yeah. So we'll see. No promises together. So Northanger Abbey for next time. All right. Northanger Abbey and thank you all for listening. And Wait, are there any more apologies we need to make? I don't really finish. I think we feel too sorry about anything at this point. I have no regrets. <laughs> Yellow. I regret nothing. <laughs> Why don't you do right like some other bed? It's not good unless you swear. That's right. I stand by everything that I said. Fantastic. All right. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kristen. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for another excellent.